This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Julia Schulman, who is the General Counsel and Chief Privacy Officer for Triple Lift. So Julia, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to it. The pleasure is is all ours, Julia. So where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and I guess journey to date, because I can never do that justice. So if you'd be so kind. Sure. So I think like most folks in roles like mine that sit at this fun intersection of data access and antitrust and misinformation, it was a very circuitous route. Uh, so I started as an M&A attorney at a law firm in New York City, not working on tech matters. I worked on things like pharma and energy, uh, went in-house, ended up at AppNexus, which is another ad tech company, um, and fortunately was there during a very, very high period of growth where privacy was becoming more and more important to the company. So I was asked to step into a role to lead privacy over at AppNexus, which was crucial to not only our compliance, but our strategy. Loved it, and they've kind of stuck with it from there. Right. Yeah. So the industry's not been able to shake you since. Okay. Yeah. Good. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So tell us a little bit about Triple Lift as an organization then for anyone that's um, that's not familiar. Sure. So in industry lingo, we're, we are an omni-channel SSP. But what that <laughs> actually means to non-ad tech folks, I hope there's some people uh, that are going to listen to this, is we actually we provide the technology that publishers use to make space on their websites and their mobile apps and some of their streaming TV services now available to advertisers to show ads to relevant consumers. Okay, fine. And I guess in terms of your role, obviously we've, we've given the audience your title, but just tell us a little bit about what, um, you know, what you're responsible for, what you've been tasked with achieving, where you sit within the organization, all that type of good stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a member of our small but mighty executive team, and I have the, the fortune to run both the legal compliance and public policy arm, but also to lead a cross-functional team uh, that tackles privacy and identity issues across our company. And so that, that team sits certainly not just in legal, actually much more in product, in engineering, um, in marketing and communications, and within our HR and revenue teams. Right. So you're, you're responsible for privacy basically across the entire organization. Yeah. Yeah. Responsible for privacy, both from a compliance perspective and a go-to-market perspective. It's so crucial to our strategy, just being able to continue to provide our technology and our services that we're not just trying to tackle it from a contractual and a legal perspective. We're trying to make sure we really see what it does to our business today and where we need to take our technology in the future and what that means, not for us, but also for our clients and the partners that we work with across a very, very complex and interrelated ecosystem. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that makes makes perfect sense. So I guess the, the world of data privacy fascinates me um, in the line of work that, that I do. And I think obviously, you know, doesn't always get the credit it deserves when there's, you know, other buzzwords around the industry like AI, for example, that try to take all the, all the limelight. But um, I think the data privacy space, obviously, not been short of its controversies and there's been a whole host of um, TV programs mainly on Netflix that have uh, you know tried to highlight some of those things like the social dilemma and the great hack and Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that so as far as data privacy goes what are the core problems that the ad tech industry faces as it stands today there's a number of them, but you know, I'd boil them down to five. <laughs> I could probably go on forever, but let's let's talk about the five <laughs> that I think are most crucial, and I'll yeah. see if you agree with me. Um, I think the first one is lack of trust um, from both consumers and regulators, and that's you know mo- mainly on the industry, frankly, for not doing a good job educating um, and really making sure people understand what we do and why the value add there. I think the second one is fragmented solutions to various regulatory requirements. Not only um, are we all kind of looking at these issues from a commercial perspective, which is not always aligned with each other, but um, you know, we're all looking at different technical solutions. This is not just a contractual or kind of a hand-wavy solution. The third is actual stagnation in solutions. The industry came up with a few very basic solutions, which I'm happy to go into detail on later, um, about 20 years ago, and we, we honestly haven't made, made a lot of progress on that. We haven't really kept pace uh, with technology and the trends that we're seeing in data. The fourth is this major clash between antitrust and privacy. So you hear a lot about that these days, the big tech companies, especially gatekeepers that control the access consumers have to content. Um, are they weaponizing privacy? Happy to get into that more. And then I think the last one is, is one that's very near and dear to my heart which is many folks in the ad tech ecosystem have taken what I call siloed approach to solutions. And what I mean by that is they've got tech teams working on technical solutions. They got lawyers working on legal solutions. They've got strategists looking at acquisition targets and you know, how they're going to kind of talk about their earnings to the market. But they haven't brought all of those together because we all have to work together to come up with good solutions to these issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I personally think, and I just across the, you know, if you think about the the broader data and analytics industry as a whole, I think that's a problem in most domains, right? Whether you're talking about privacy, whether you're talking about machine learning, everything's often done in silos, and and obviously that's uh, of, um, you know, harm to to the business, really, you know, ultimately. Um, so I know when. We spoke offline. You talked, I think you, you mentioned uh, dysfunctional hamster wheel, which stuck with me, um, of you know solutions that the privacy and protection space has kind of endured. Talk us through what you kind of mean by that. Yeah, what I, what I mean by that, you know, is as you come in and you kind of look at how we've evolved over the years technically and then look at the solutions that we've proposed, it's basically the same issue um, that we're tackling year over year. I think a lot of times we're cycling through different people who are coming through the industry. And so to them, it's a new issue and there's new solutions. But in reality, if you take a step back and you look at how we've tackled it over the years, 
we've we've sort of just used the same basic solutions. And I, I can give a couple of, of um, examples here. I think the way to think about it is way back in the day, early, early 2000s, um, you know, DoubleClick at the time, which is the company that's now you know, controlled by Google and is really powered, uh, most would say their ascent in the ad tech ecosystem, uh, was looking to buy a company called Abacus, um, which was going to marry offline and online data. And in the US, FTC was up in arms. The New York AG, I believe, got involved. And what was born from that was an opt-out solution. Basically, consumers could opt out of um, what's called profiling on the internet. And then, you know, five, 10 years later, the U.S. government, again, sort of got up in arms about it. And the industry came back around and proposed another opt-out solution and contracts um, that's come up in arms again. And every single time the industry has proposed basically an additional opt-out solution, enhanced notice to consumers, and sometimes my content that end up getting trafficked in, you know, creatives. I, you know, I see you nodding here. But mm-hmm. what the industry hasn't done is it hasn't really created a true body that can actually prove out, you know, what it's doing with the data. Like we all have contracts in place and we all have these solutions, but we have never done a good job of actually proving out to consumers, to regulators that what we say we do on paper, we're actually doing. Um, or even providing technical solutions where, you know, maybe we're not all passing data among each other. And instead, we create something more sophisticated where, you know, you only get access to data when a consumer has truly permissioned it. And someone can very quickly check that you're doing the right thing with that data, for example. But it's just, it's been this hamster wheel. And I think, unfortunately, while that hamster wheel has been turning, um, we can get into this in more detail, the larger tech companies have kind of seen the writing on the wall that this hamster wheel couldn't keep going. And they were actually off on the side, spending a lot of money, hiring in the best privacy and security engineers, really thinking about more sophisticated solutions to these problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, seeing, seeing as you brought it up, let's let's go there because I think it, it flows quite nicely in terms of those big tech firms. And as you said, kind of spinning up their, their own solutions, if you will, on, on the side. What does that in reality look like? In terms of what they're doing, you know, that the, the the broader ad tech industry is not. Yeah. So so first things first, um, they've built up entire tech stacks that basically allow them to provide kind of one stop shop solutions to publishers and advertisers that don't require point solutions throughout the middle for the most part. And so that means as soon as they collect data or they receive it, it really doesn't have to leave their ecosystems. So that's that's the first innovative solution that is great. I think second is they are typically on the front line of having a consumer relationship and collecting that data in the first place. So they've actually dictated um, answers to a lot of the regulations that we see out there. They've said, oh, here's how we're going to interpret GDPR. And here's here's our solution to it. And the industry is going to have to follow this. But along the more sophisticated lines, they've been doing a lot of interesting stuff. So They've been spinning up um, privacy-preserving technology that allows what's called on-device processing. So data doesn't even have to leave your device. Apple does this. Um, Google's been looking at this. Their browser, Chrome, has been looking at this. Where data does have to leave your device, um, conveniently, they they host and manage some of the largest cloud providers in the world. And so they can actually allow for 
technical solutions that allow different parties to uh, match and share data and actually run jobs against that data in a hived off, locked down data ecosystem that allows that data to be controlled and actually not be processed at a user level. Um, And then finally, they've been looking at ways to use anonymized data, um, both on device and off device in ways that would actually allow us to sidestep and not collect and use as much personal data in the first place. So if you sort of take all of that R&D that they've been working on, you know, for years and years and years, maybe for advertising, maybe for other things, and combine that with uh, mistrust of our ecosystem and all these regulations that are coming out that basically dictate people, limit the data they collect, limit who they're sharing it with, provide much greater transparency and controls to consumers, it gives them way more to play with than point solutions that are in a very fragmented ecosystem where you know we all have to figure out how to work together with people. Mm. This is this is the cynic in me for sure, but is this um, a way for those big tech players to effectively create a loophole around the law to a certain extent? Yeah, you know that's a it's a good question. Um, in, you know, I take a step back and think about maybe why the laws were were put in place, and I'm not going to pretend to be you know, a regulator and in the minds of some of the greatest minds around that have really been thinking about these issues, especially in Europe, for years and years and years. But you know, from a data protection perspective, the, the goals are really predicated on these fair information practice principles, and they're really predicated on this notion that consumers should have control over their directly identifiable and personal information. So if these big tech companies can actually figure out ways to provide all of their services to consumers in a way where personal data is either not collected or the second it's collected, it truly is anonymized. Um, And then they can still provide great, maybe even better solutions to these consumers for free or for much lower prices and provide them in a way that is more enhanced. I don't know if it's a loophole per se, Um, But I'm sure there's a flip side to it, right? Where, yes, maybe there is a loophole. Maybe it's just as creepy what they're doing, even (laughs) if it's, even if it's, you know, not, not technically personal data, but it's modeled data or data that's been trained, you know, over the years off of data that's almost personal in nature. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the, the the bit that fascinates me, and I I know that we're going to delve into the realms of ethics at some point, but obviously we we get to to this point in the the great debate you know where it's about how do you how do you get that balance between being innovative and not stepping over that line which is the law right and and at what point on your moral compass are you willing to step to that mark and how close are you willing to step to that mark and the age-old debate around just because we could doesn't mean we should or you know and all of that type of of stuff how how do you get that right between because it's you know what you said there makes perfect sense to me and you know there's effectively ways around some of the stuff that the big tech players are playing so they can you know create better solutions and kind of you know monopolize some of those markets and so on and so forth but that innovation piece the law how do you kind of balance that middle ground and you know from a just from a broader perspective i guess yeah So, you know, first things first, I think you're absolutely right, right? What 
what is legal is not always ethical. And what is ethical, interestingly, is not always legal, (laughs) given how these regulations are drafted. So I think, unfortunately, that's the reality of the world. But at a high level over the years, working very, very closely with engineers and technologists that, that are blow my mind on a daily basis. I try to work with them on a principles basis, which is generally how they like to work anyway. Um, and it works better when, you know, the law is not zeros and ones, but at least you can try to translate it into some big ticket things they can think through. And first and foremost, it might seem really basic, but I always say to them, you know, get yourself out of the table, get yourself out of the code, step back for a second, pretend you don't understand technology is what you're thinking of doing with this data, would a consumer be comfortable with it if they actually understood what you were doing today, right? Like, and, and I'll give you an example here of something I, I've, I've talked through over the years is, um, you know, I think we were, we were looking at years ago um, ways of keeping more data on device and I think allowing caching uh, for SDKs and whatnot in the mobile context. And um, we had some engineers who were frankly frustrated that, um, there were data, you know, there were limits on um, data plans that consumers had with their devices. And so they were saying, well, you know, there are ways for us to, to work around this so that we can still cache this information. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. And, and I was like, all right, take a step back here. Number one, consumers are not going to be able to understand what you're doing. But number two, you might be blowing through a consumer's like budget because you might actually do an end run around this, and they might end up getting a bill at the end of the month for hundreds of dollars because we cached information on their device, even if it's not creepy and even if it's not doing anything that would uh, that would actually do an end run around the law, we're, we're causing them to pay more money because we're storing more information on their device. So always look at it from that lens of a consumer and does it make sense to them? And if you were sitting in their shoes, would you be frustrated would you think it was creepy or would you think it would make sense? Um, and, and I've tried to do that every time now when I work with engineers around these issues. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you tackle that conversation between private privacy and ethics? Because again, there's, you know, two, two sides of a, of the same coin almost. Right. But with ever so slightly different biases around the, the conversation and what you're trying to achieve, I guess. Yeah, you know, I again, I you know, I always try to align on first principles with folks who are closest to the ground, um, and then you know, for certain use cases, basically, you say we need we need to bring this to a committee of folks that we can get a number of different points of view. It goes to my point earlier around not doing things in silos, and one thing you know might seem creepy to someone, but not creepy to another person. So you really have to have those tough conversations as much as engineers maybe just want to have like a playbook to run through and not have to have a conversation about something or debate it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you made reference a couple of times there to like, you know, someone who works in engineering, how, how has that kind of siloed approach, or I guess, have you noticed any major differences when you've worked with certain types of business domains? You know, if you're working with people, you know, who work in, the legal space obviously they're probably more attuned to some of this than you know an engineer that's just looking for the best technical solution for for what they're trying to achieve right have you noticed any major differences across you know working across product and engineering versus legal versus finance or whatever the case may be 
Oh goodness. Yes. <laughs> um, I could probably go on, go on on this, but I think I'll say there was a great um, article written maybe two years ago by the woman who was the chief product office or chief privacy officer at Adobe. I believe at the time that was something along the lines of, you know, engineers are from Mars and, and lawyers are from Venus. And it was, it was basically <laughs> touching exactly on this, which was, we as privacy professionals and as lawyers have to figure out a way to bridge language gaps and thought processes and ways of thinking across the various teams that we work with so that, you know, number one, they can understand basic requirements. They can understand the rationale behind things and we can figure out how to speak the same language. And, you know, I generally tend to say to engineering folks that, we're not going to meet you all the way, you know, on your side. I actually think it's good for your career and for your growth to have to come a little bit closer toward the middle and realize not everything is zeros and ones, uh, but we do need to meet them there. And so for engineers, I generally try to understand their systems. I try to understand how they speak, um, data dictionaries and data points, you name it, jobs, all of that. For product folks, um, I try to learn a lot from them and work in frameworks, right? You try to simplify it and really talk about what's the problem we're trying to achieve. What are the various obstacles? What is the framework we're going to operate under? Communications and marketing, I see you nodding, but you know, for them, it's little tidbits and it's boil it down to four different bullet points. And you know, it needs to be really crisp and it can't be wishy-washy. So let's think about how we can describe something in a fairly simplistic, logical way. And then you know, for management teams, you really have to figure out how to boil down very tough, very hard concepts into a framework generally for them to think through things. And I think the biggest thing that companies have grappled with over the last couple of years is um, how to explain to your board and to your executive team that you've got things under control and you're managing it, but not simplifying it so much that, that they don't have an appreciation for both the compliance risk and the strategic and legal risk. Because if yeah. that's what happens, you're in a really bad spot as a company. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you decipher between the two, I guess, from a, you know, on level, this is what compliance look like versus, you know, strategically as a business, this, this is what the, this is what the net, net, net result could mm-hmm. be. Um, is, is it kind of different strokes for different folks, so to speak, in terms of who you're talking to depends on, the level that you go in at? Yeah. You know, you know, typically I don't like to divorce compliance from strategy because at a fundamental level, they actually go hand in hand, but I do talk about current requirements, generally how the market is responding to them. And then what I do is I say, actually, you know, the way the market is responding to these requirements right now presents defensive and offensive opportunities for our company in that, you know, we might, the gold standard from a compliance perspective going further, frankly, than we might need to. But that actually might be a bad thing for our clients and for the industry long-term. So we really need to understand the, the totality of those circumstances and make sure that we're partnering with our customers, partnering with the market, really staying close to market practices and ensuring you know we're leaving ourselves flexibility to operate. In the long term, and and a good example of that that I think will hit home with you is you can take a very blunt approach to um, how you store your data um, in certain markets, and whether you know you can ever use it in the future. 
or you can build a more complex data ecosystem that is privacy preserving, meets requirements, but does provide the company with flexibility to the extent they want to over time do something more sophisticated. So that blunt approach might just be easier from a compliance perspective, but it might be setting you up to fail long-term from a strategic perspective because you now have a very misinformed system that's lacking any bells and whistles for the future when you might need to collect and use data in a more sophisticated manner. Yeah, yeah, no, that and that definitely makes sense. And I think that's a, you know, huge talking point across the industry, right, when it comes to how data is, you know, managed and governed and, and all of that type of stuff. Because, you know, as you said, if you put a, a blanket approach from a defensive standpoint, yeah, great, you know, you're not going to get in trouble with the law, but there's missed opportunities coming out of the the offensive side, which makes which makes perfect sense. So I guess to take it back to where you're talking about the the big techs and, and what they're doing versus what the ad tech industry um, isn't doing, what, in your opinion, have been the consequences for the advertising industry o- overall within that kind of little little scenario? Goodness. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, I think the the first thing is, in hindsight, allowing the big tech ecosystem, and and this is not specific to us, right? But this happens in most industries, to define industry standards, self-regulatory programs in a way that um, frankly benefited them over time. I can get into that in a second. I think it was allowing those big companies to lobby and actually draft and define the regulations that we are all now um, dealing with. And those those were, of course... Uh, drafted and set up in ways that benefited the companies that were spending a ton of money on lobbying. Uh, and a good example of that is CCPA and the definition of sale under it, which funny enough, right, benefits a big tech company who has a direct relationship with consumer because that consumer is very, very likely not selling data to the device, I'm looking at my Apple here, that collects it or to Google the, you know, the browser that's collecting it. But as soon as they have to pass it out to someone else, they get hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, not spending money on, on R&D and not actually aligning with their competitors to come up with solutions or to lobby for solutions that provided longer-term flexibility. So we're now in a market where the big tech companies control the browsers, control the operating systems, um, control all of that. They have mostly full end-to-end tech stacks that don't actually have to interoperate with others, even if they do from an antitrust perspective. Um, and then they've got this you know, more fulsome R&D. So the more open ecosystem kind of sat back on its heels, allowed these companies to do all of those things. Um, you know, And now they're caught on, on their back heels and they're trying to make arguments around antitrust and they're trying to push for some new solutions that are a combination of contracts um, and things like fingerprinting. And, you know, that's just going to be a short-term solution. Mm. I don't blame them though. Like I really don't because a lot of it was, you know, you're going to get your next round of financing. You don't have a regulator breathing down your neck. You've got limited resources and your clients don't really want you spending time on this stuff. They want you innovating, you know, with your actual day-to-day technology. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you, you spoke earlier about kind of weaponizing data privacy. Um, talk, talk to us about that. What does what does that mean? What does that look like going forward? What's coming next? All of that type of good stuff. Yeah. 
So, you know, I think first things first is taking these regulations, right? And Apple is a great example of this. And um, basically saying you can't trust anyone else in the ecosystem. So just work with us, right? So they've weaponized it. They've basically said, you can't trust anyone out there. Um, so, you know, we're going to do everything end to end through our entire tech stack. So they've weaponized it in that way. I think in other ways they've done this is they basically said GDPR and CCPA and other regulations out there, they've, they've made the requirements that these regulations dictate so complex for a interrelated ecosystem that has to communicate and share data back and forth to actually comply with. And again, making it so that their end-to-end more simplistic solutions work. The third way of doing it is making it such that data, the, the, the real boogeyman and the, the bad thing about data, the narrative they've been driving is this sharing and passing of data. So they've been very focused on that sharing and passing of data. And I think you've hit on this earlier. They haven't been as focused on the actual processing and the actual use of that data in the first place, even if, to your point, it's anonymized, maybe it's still creepy and maybe it still pushes an ethical boundary. Maybe it still pushes a legal boundary. The whole narrative is around sharing uh, with third parties and the tracking of users. But what it isn't focused on is even their use of that data in the first place. Mm. This is just me thinking out loud here, and this is what typically lands me in hot water, Julia. But um, <laughs> the, you know, obviously nowadays, you know, on your phone, on the internet, on Facebook, whatever you're on, you know, you're trying to read an article or something and you get the pop-up, you know, accept this or accept that. And, you know, invariably 9.9 times out of 10, I'm sure most people just click accept and move on and no one has a clue what they're accepting to. And I'm I'm very guilty of this. What's... What's the actual reality of what's going on behind that situation? And how does that play into this type of conversation? Yeah. So look, there's two different, I would say there's simplistically two different realities with that situation. There's, there's There's frankly an ecosystem of good players who are doing what they need to be doing and actually adhering to what they tell a consumer they do and their contractual requirements. Okay. Yeah. And then there's a bad ecosystem, unfortunately, that is plugged into the broader ecosystem that is maybe not doing what it should be doing. And what I mean by that is you as a consumer, um, open up a browser on your, your computer and you browse to the telegraph or you name it. Um, and to your point, that telegraph, right, is popping a little banner to you that's saying, to access this free content, you know, we, we, we have to track you. And actually, we use 1,200 different companies to facilitate the tracking of you to show you relevant advertising. And if you click into that banner, you can see who those parties are. You can see the various uses that they make of that data. And you you as a consumer control what they're doing. Um, so if everyone was acting good, right, and they were adhering to those limitations, and if a consumer said, no, you can't do this, those companies should be doing it, and then they should be complying with everything there. The reality of the situation is we are an ecosystem of sometimes 1,200 different companies that are involved in delivering one advertisement to a consumer based on various um, technical solutions out there. And if one in that chain breaks down or is selling your data to a nefarious government actor, right, or um, 
targeting you based on incredibly sensitive data that they collected offline, for example, they take that whole ecosystem down. And that's what these large tech providers are really focused on. They're basically saying, you know, we can't trust this ecosystem. It's all predicated based on adhering to a consumer's directions and then a trust me sort of ecosystem because for the most part, that data keeps getting passed around. Um, So let's go into a locked ecosystem. I would argue there should be a third path here where there's a lot of smart, smart, smart people in this room and there are ways to solve these issues uh, that don't require locking down an ecosystem and only allowing four different companies to provide advertising and marketing services um, Mm. to, you know, publishers and advertisers out there. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. I guess, and this is again, just a more broader general question, but obviously with, you know, just the, the general consumer now being so much more data savvy for want of a better phrase, you know, and kind of clued, clued on to some of this stuff. Um, and I'm sure, you know, some of the TV shows that, that have been out there have, have helped raise awareness around this stuff. Have you noticed any changes within the industry in terms of, you know, what, what that, what's, what's happened because of, you know, consumers becoming more educated about this stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I have noticed changes and I, I, maybe I'm a little cynical here, but I think consumers to your point have watched these great, um, documentaries on, you know, Netflix and whatnot. Um, whether they're totally accurate is another thing. Um, they've, you know, they've seen this on like dramatized TV shows and they've read articles across the board on these kind of things. And I think between them and then privacy activists and regulators, that's what's driven the change in behavior. Maybe it's not exactly the consumers. It's, it's trickled down to the news outlets so from a PR perspective, and then it's trickled into regulations. And so, yeah, we're seeing changes, unfortunately, because they're being driven by bad PR cycles, bad news cycles, um, and regulations and our customers, right? Publishers and advertisers are demanding these changes. So we're certainly trying to work with them, but they're caught in between a rock and a hard place. I think where, you know, they still have their, their marketing campaign budgets they want to meet, right? On low budgets, uh, publishers are still fighting to continue to monetize their content to be able to provide it, to provide a good consumer experience. And there's so much noise out there and there's so many different technology providers kind of selling them different solutions. It's hard for them to really figure out what makes sense and, and how to work with them from a strategic mm. perspective. Yeah, yeah. Who who wins and loses from all of this then? Because I know when we spoke offline, you'd mentioned a few key points, which I think could be very useful for you to, to share. Yeah, so I think... Um, the people who win, it's, it fits into sort of an ad tech bucket, a publisher bucket, an advertiser bucket, and I would call it a new technology bucket. So from an ad tech perspective, I do think in the short term, uh, as we always do, you know, there's been some short-term solutions that have been pushed out there. So I do think short-term, the, the, the bigger players who kind of figure out how to provide status quo solutions will be okay in the short term. Um, Smaller players, unfortunately, I do think it's becoming harder and harder for them to operate because they can't get access to a lot of this data. Longer term, I do think the big tech companies that control devices and control the gates are going to make it technically impossible for the ecosystem to continue to operate the way it's going to 
And I think they will make it impossible to get access to this data. So what's going to come up is a new ecosystem of infrastructure players that sit out on the edge and also plug into the various bigger tech platforms and allow people to, through permissions and otherwise, um, upload and share data in a way that doesn't run through these kind of open pipes that exist today, for lack of a better term. And that's already happening. We're starting to see this behind the scenes. I think on the publisher and advertiser side, um, you know, the publishers that that can and should be winning here are the ones that have dedicated audiences and are providing actual great content to users. They've got you know loyal users. They've got people who trust them. They trust their reporting. They trust their content. They should be really seizing the day, stepping up, creating great partnerships, and realizing that if they've got that trust with consumers, they should have control over that data and be able to literally dictate who does and doesn't get access to that data. Um, I mean, and then unfortunately, some of these bad publishers out there that have bad content and have kind of just been piggybacking, frankly, on an ecosystem that's just trying to buy specific users and not trying to actually show ads on good content are going to lose out over time. And then on the advertiser side, I think advertisers that really look for longer-term sophisticated solutions and are willing to buy on different KPIs and you know willing to really invest in new and future technology that blows up the current way of thinking are going to win out in the long term. Um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see where that goes. But they all need to work together to try to push for these new technologies and not kind of work against each other because if we all work against each other, unfortunately, these end-to-end big tech platforms end up winning out over time. Mm, yeah. Have you got any kind of thought in terms of what that kind of technological landscape and advancement looks like in the future? Yeah, I do. You know, I think it's, um, and some of these concepts are starting to actually play out at um, some of the tables that at the internet standard setting bodies where they're actually setting the standards. Um, it's a concept of um, a party, whether it's a trusted server, so something that's actually sitting server side, or a party that is actually embedded within the operating systems and on device um, that provides a trusted and neutral layer that others can plug into. So that includes the big tech platforms, includes the advertisers and publishers, includes the data platforms and the cloud ecosystems that they're using. And I fully believe that this is going to have to happen because of the antitrust angle. Because I don't believe these big companies that you know are starting to lock down access to their systems and starting to push on device um, and closed data ecosystems are going to also be able to control the infrastructure that plugs into the rest of the internet. At some point, someone's going to call, call bull on that and make yeah. them work with others. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes sense. I guess from a, from a broader perspective in terms of organizations that are advertising and are using companies to advertise and so forth and so on is, are these conversations being had at a very strategic level between those organizations or is it very much a, you know, we want this advertised, you deal with, (laughs) you deal with everything else that comes with that. Um, It's a good question. It kind of goes back to that siloed conversation. I do think at, in boardrooms and at high levels today, there is a greater understanding of this issue 
um, and what it might do for you know publishers, frankly, being able to monetize and advertisers being able to reach their audiences. Um, but I think you know there's unfortunately still there's just people on the ground right who are tasked with executing on their day to day jobs like spending budgets and publishers who are tasked with paying the bills and keeping the lights on. So you can have these high level strategic conversations, but if the people on the ground who have to spend the money and have to collect the money are incentivized in a way where they have to keep the status quo going, you can have those big ticket strategic conversations, but you also have to meet your, you know, your earnings. So I would tell you, keep an eye out because I will say European publishers and European hold codes, I feel like you know, have a very different way of thinking about shareholder value and about thinking about long-term uh, strategy. And they're sometimes willing to take a hit in the short term to allow themselves a much bigger strategic opportunity in the future. And unfortunately, I think what the way the U.S. markets are driven and the way Wall Street and analysts are driven, you tend to see you know the bigger folks on the ground in the U.S. for lack of a better you know term, they have to just look at those short-term growth opportunities and even if they see it, you know, they're, they're not always investing where they need to invest to take advantage of those long-term opportunities. Yeah. I mean, as we, so as we look to wrap this up then, Julia, I guess if there are people out there listening, whether that's privacy professionals or people within organizations that are responsible for having these types of conversations based on the chat that we've had today, what's the kind of advice around things that they should kind of look out for over the next, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of 12, 18 months or so? I would say a couple things. So first and foremost, um, maybe I'm cynical here, but I also think there are really cool new technologies coming. And so this is not the death of advertising. This is just kind of like that third journey that the industry is on. And it's going to look a little different in a couple of years, but it's going to be a really interesting uh, new ecosystem. Second from that is, you know, don't just assume status quo. Is going to work. I don't, it's not. The internet is changing. And so you have to be able to stay on top of those trends. And the third one is don't just keep your head in the sand and work in a silo and assume, you know, your tech team is going to figure stuff out and your legal team is going to figure stuff out. Really try to bring everyone together and look holistically across what you're trying to achieve and try to look at that from all different angles and put together a strategy that's going to work short term and longer term kind of based on current ecosystem and the way things are looking in the future. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of understanding trends and not accepting, you know, status quo as, as, as you put it, are there ways for people to kind of do that? Yeah. So I do think, um, you know, there's a number of different good content providers and folks in the industry that are starting to collate, you know, their thoughts based on this. And so I'm starting to see, you know, a couple of blogs coming out from, privacy professionals who are seeing the landscape more broadly and from strategic professionals and engineers that are seeing the landscape more broadly. So I would, I would say they should look out for some much better um, news content collaborators who are putting these things out and really seeing it. I know we're working on it as a company. We're trying to come up with a, a good synthesized way of sharing out this information with folks so that people can stay on top of it without having to follow 45 different folks on Twitter and listen to 10 different <laughs> podcasts a week. Not that that's not interesting, but it's hard. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, look, if, if there are people out there that are kind of keen to connect with you to kind of discuss anything that we've discussed today, or, you know, maybe learn more about how you and Triple Lift might be able to 
help them? Um, what's the best way for them to, to reach you? Sure. They can, um, they can message me and, you know, friend me on yeah. LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm always, I'm always available to, to chat. Yeah, perfect. All right. Well, Julie, look, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a very insightful chat and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our Bishon Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcast's as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week.